Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, we are back after a summer hiatus with two of my colleagues, Trent Gordon, a senior analyst here at Back Bay, and Dr. Mavra Nasir, a senior consultant. I've invited Trent and Mavra on to discuss a thought piece they published earlier this year in Bioprocess Online regarding the development and transactional landscape with respect to antibody drug conjugates. Welcome, Trent. Welcome, Mavra. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. Thanks, Pete. So, Trent, given our diverse audience background, maybe you can just kick off the podcast today on what we mean when we talk about an, an ADC. Sure. And, and thanks so much, Pete, for, for having me. I'm very much delighted to be here on the Back Bay podcast. So an ADC is what's known as an antibody drug conjugate. Now, I believe they're actually very aptly named because simply they're a class of therapeutics that are comprised of a monoclonal antibody, which is conjugated through a linker to a drug. Now, ADCs are comprised of three main components. So first off, we have the monoclonal antibody, then we have the linker, and then we have the final piece of the ADC, which is the cytotoxic payload. This antibody drug complex is intended to specifically deliver the toxic payload, which right now is most often chemotherapy, directly to the targeted cells while minimizing damage to healthy tissue. Once the ADC binds to the target cells, the drug is released and exerts its cytotoxic effects, ideally leading to cell death and disease regression. Given their often high potency, I actually like to think of them as a guided chemotherapy missile. Now, I would actually like to highlight that although ADCs have been generating a number of headlines recently, ADCs are not exactly a new modality. The first ADC was actually approved in 2000 for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. Since then, we actually now have 12 ADCs approved on the market, and eight of them have been approved very recently since 2017. Now, maybe in regards to actually why we wanted to write this paper, we really wanted to get a deeper understanding of the transaction landscape in ADCs and really understand if the improved targeted approach of ADCs actually offered increased cash for drug developers. And I think this is especially relevant with recurrent concerns regarding implications of the Inflation Reduction Act for developing small molecules. And I think what's particularly exciting about ADCs is their extended revenue generation potential. I think we'll get into that in a few minutes. Thanks, Trent. That was a great uh, uh, primer on the field and, and backgrounder. So, Mavra, let's start discussing what you and Trent found in the paper. So maybe you can set the stage for some of the interesting dynamics and data you found with respect to the transactional landscape in the ADC field. Sure. Happy to, Pete. One of the key reasons we were interested in this space was some of the deal dynamics that we saw uh, looking at the oncology space for the last five years. The first thing we noticed was just the number of deals that were being consummated with ADC as a modality. 
So just looking back the last five years, with the caveat in mind, we're looking at those with disclosed financials. But even then, we had around 90 deals and across clinical development stages, so anywhere from discovery to commercialized, um, the average upfront value was um, around $850 million, which is not unheard of in oncology, but for even advanced modalities, that's, that's pretty high. And milestones were just shy of $1.5 billion. Now, what was really striking and interesting was when, in terms of clinical development stage, these deals were being struck, alike other advanced modalities. And I would even put some of the CAR-T and bispecific modalities in the last five years in this space. We saw a majority of these, the uh, ADC deals, around 60 to 80%, either in the discovery or preclinical stages, which to us indicates uh, a higher desire for strategic than even non-strategics to partner early, to uh, collaborate early for further development. And besides frequency, even the value for some of these early stage deals was pretty high compared to other modalities. So as an example, for assets that are, were in discovery stages of development, the average upfront payment was around 20 million. Again, keep the caveat in mind, this is for those with disclosed financials with 600 million in potential milestones and preclinical stages, upfront was double that to so 50 million and up to 2 billion in milestones. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of money on the table, a lot of value to be, to be created. And so that was definitely something that was striking to us. And obviously as an asset goes commercial, so the more safety data you have, the more clinical data you have from safety to proof of concept phase two to larger studies, we saw a pretty linear relationship in the overall value go up. And the, the, the number I'll code is once we saw these ADCs enter clinic, so phase one, phase two, the value increased to kind of 10 times the upfront value compared to preclinical stages, which was 50 million. So now 500 million. And, uh, you know, we, we got to bring up two key deals in this space that have commanded, you know, multi-billion dollars. So obviously the Pfizer Seagen deal, 43 billion commercialized assets, multiple commercialized assets in that deal. And obviously a couple of years prior to that, the Gilead Immunomedics deal, 21 billion for commercialized assets, which again points to how much the, the value increases once these have been commercialized and cl clinical development has been de-risked. So Trent, that's some pretty interesting data specifically with respect to the, you know, frequency of, of preclinical and discovery deals and certainly the values that they've historically commanded. So m maybe you can talk about, you know, some of the hypotheses that we have about what about ADCs have allowed them to generate, you know, such healthy transaction sizes. Absolutely. So naturally as consultants, we like to break things into threes. So I think First and foremost, ADCs have shown very good clinical efficacy. They have been able to demonstrate significant improvements in overall survival and progression-free survival across tumor types. And I think my favorite example of this is actually the standing ovation that data from an HER2 received at ASCO in 2022 for its phase three Destiny Breast 4 trial. Now, in the trial, it showed a 4.8-month improvement in progression-free survival and a 6.6-month .6 improvement in overall survival in HER2-low advanced breast cancer. 
So although I wasn't personally in the room, I had several friends that were, and they mentioned that it was one of those moments that just produced a lot of goosebumps. It was a truly powerful, you had to be there kind of moment. So anyways, I think that's my favorite example of the clinical efficacy and power that ADCs have been able to show. But I think that uh, what that story kind of tells us is that ADCs are able to improve outcomes in cancers where the current treatment landscape has been stagnant for years. Now, when you look at deals in earlier stages of development, which as Mavra mentioned, is where the majority of ADC transactions occurred, what we noticed was that the ADCs that were able to undergo these transactions had the ability to show a reduction in tumor volume across multiple xenograft models. Now, maybe we can move on to things outside of efficacy. I think the really the second thing that drives high tra- transaction value is the commercial success of ADCs. So three of the 12, roughly 25% of the approved ADCs in HER2, Clocida, etc., have reached blockbuster status. And so when you have 25% of an asset class that is reaching blockbuster status, so over a billion dollars in annual revenue, I mean, that's pretty special and not something we consistently see. And so lastly, those, what's really exciting about ADCs is I think that those blockbuster years can potentially continue for a very, very long time. What I mean by that is ADCs are incredibly hard to manufacture, so it requires significant capital expenditure to actually develop these ADCs and create the advanced conjugation chemistry required for development. So given it's hard enough for large pharma companies to actually develop these ADCs, it's very challenging for biosimilars to enter the market and attempt to replicate it. What that means is that you can potentially have revenue far beyond the traditional patent life of a drug. Interesting. Interesting. And and certainly from some of the work we've been doing in the space, because, you know, as you characterized at the outset, you've got three components, each one of which, you know, potentially offers its own, you know, independent IP protection. You have more of a, a picket fence, as the saying goes, around. Uh, exclusivity of a molecule just beyond, you know, the difficulty and issues with respect to to manufacturing. So, so Mavra, we, we've talked a little bit about when deals occur, how big they are, and maybe what be the what would be the underlying drivers of that activity. But maybe you can talk a little bit about the deal structures and the type of deals and and how you know consolidators and developers are are sort of a, a approaching the the BD side. Yes, happy to. And uh, we're kind of just tagging along what Trent and you were talking about earlier. In, on, on the structure side, we've noticed two key kind of deal dynamics. One, we've found uh, interest in from both strategic, but also what we would call ex-strategic, or not your typical Pfizer mark, um, to engage in um, deals that involve more platform technology. Lego Chem, I think, is a really good example where they are um, an active acquirer in this space. They have their own platform, 
but they've built that plat platform basically by bolting on different kind of ADC technology pieces. And they have done it at very early stages with biotech companies and discovery or preclinical stages of development. Um, you do, we do see strategic also play in early, early cycle of development, but there's definitely more of an appetite for more platform plays in these early stages, especially if there's not a lot of safety data available from ex-strategics like LegoCom or LegoCan who are, who are looking to build their own ADC platform and differentiate it from other, other uh, developers. Obviously now as, as sits, um, progress to clinic or platforms become de-risk, we see um, uh, the larger players um, enter the space and licensing and m and become a lot more common. Um, in licensing um, is, and m and are both common, but in licensing more so from phase one and especially phase two side of um, stage of development um, from some of the larger players, BMS, um, Merck, obviously Pfizer, where once they have a target in mind or are interested in a target, looking at their you know, oncology franchise, whether it's solid healers or hematology, they are then more inclined to engage in those discussions um, and, and move the, the, the deal forward. Right. And we've been talking a lot about you know, strategic transactions thus far, but you and, you and Trent also looked at sort of the, the investment in private VC uh, dynamics and, and what did you find there? So obviously it's been pretty challenging. I don't need to tell our audience. I haven't heard. <laughs> need to tell our audience this. Um, it's been a pretty challenging fundraising landscape in biotech, whether it's uh, VC fundraising or even IPO. Um, what we did see though in the last, again, five years, if you look at that window, we did see an aggregate of around 1.8 billion poured through into the ADC space. Uh, by the end of 2022. So there um, has been a lot of money that biotech companies have that they're potentially holding on, that they've all de-raised, that is likely going to be deployed into generating um, some, some early stage phase one ready data. We did see a significant inflection point in terms of average raise, particularly in 2019, following the approval of three ADCs in that year. So, and that's not something that's uncommon in the biotech space. You see approval of a particular modality um, in a particular indication. You see interest from VCs at, as that modality is somewhat de-risk. And, and also, uh, you hinted, Pete, earlier, the work being done in this space. So in, in talking to investors as well, we are seeing a lot of optimism around the modality of ADCs. I don't know if we mentioned the IRA yet. Has anybody said that word? <laughs> There's been a lot of commentary on how the IRA Inflation Reduction Act may impact the investment in certain modalities and how strategics may be rethinking their portfolios and, and have rethought their portfolio strategy when it comes to certain modalities. So from that perspective, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if VCs are more interested in something like an ADC where, Pete, like you mentioned, each module you get some sort of IP protection and could be important from exclusivity perspective. So uh, I guess the last thing I'll mention here is, you know, from an investor perspective, modality is still interesting. And then, you know, they are keeping a tight grip on their wallets and from a, what they would like to see in, in terms of a data package beyond novelty and how it's differentiated. Um, I think safety data is still, is still key 
you know, minimal, minimal, I would say is has been raised to now, to some extent, even human safety data from what we have heard. It used to be preclinical and talks package, but I think now even with ADCs, um, just having a plan or, or some sort of safety data that de-risks at least one of the, if it's a novel kind of configuration, that would be very helpful. Yeah. And I think that brings up a good point that, you know, some of these issues with respect to depending on, you know, what the uniqueness is of the ADC, getting some of that safety data may be even more important for, you know, a strategic to, to jump in or even a VC to infest, you, you know, because there have been some more negative news flow. It hasn't been all sunshine and puppy dogs. So Trent, maybe you can talk a little bit of, you know, some of the, the hiccups that have been reported over the last uh, few months within this space. Pete, unfortunately, you are correct. Tragically, there's been numerous patient deaths involving ADC assets. Now, these deaths have occurred due to a variety of reasons, ranging from respiratory issues, excess bleeding, liver, and cardiotoxicity. In terms of what's actually causing these deaths, it's not fully understood, but it's likely the linker, payload, or a deadly combination of both. So a linker that potentially degrades too early or too late may cause a release of the payload on undesired tissue. Now, the payloads that are currently available are very cytotoxic, which is what makes ADCs so effective. But on the flip side, any off-target effects to undesired parts of the body can be very, very dangerous. Now, this has placed an even greater emphasis on the safety profile of ADCs, particularly on linker stability. And so one thing we're actually hearing from experts is that ocular toxicities, even in the preclinical stages of development, are a real showstopper. And it does seem that safety right now for ADCs is almost just as important as efficacy. And so as Mavra mentioned, phase one human data is a key differentiator for ADC assets. So those in the preclinical phases of development really have to highlight their current safety profile and their plans to show a differentiated safety profile once they reach the clinic in order to help them obtain any sort of funding. So, so maybe as we wrap up here today, you know, you each can provide a couple of thoughts on, on where you think the field, either from a clinical standpoint or from a business development or commercial standpoint, is, uh, is headed. So Trent, how about we start with you? Of course. Despite ADCs being on the market since 2000, I still believe that we are very much in the early stages of development. There is a tremendous amount to improve upon in the ADC space. Despite ADCs being considered a targeted approach, there's actually limited evidence to support that ADCs target and selectively deliver payloads directly at the tumor site. What I mean by that, it's actually estimated that between 1-5% to of the payload actually makes it on the tumor site. So if we're seeing this level of efficacy with potentially limited targeting, 
Just imagine what we can do if we can successfully deploy the payloads exactly where we need them. And so in order to actually do that, I think we're seeing a lot of advances in improved targeting of ADCs with the actual payloads themselves. So what I'm really excited about is a couple of novel payloads in development. I think we're starting to see some proteas activated payloads, RNA targeting payloads, and radiotherapeutic-based ADCs. I think all of these novel approaches will be able to substantially impact the ADC landscape and are something that we can look forward to in the coming years. And speaking of what's going to happen in the near term, there are actually 10 ADCs that are approaching pivotal results that, again, have the ability to impact the standard of care across tumor types. I think with ADCs in the pipeline, we will additionally start to see improvements in manufacturing techniques, which will also help to decrease the heterogeneity that has challenged the ADC field. And I think one specific thing, again, in terms of payloads we're hearing from experts, is the MMAE payloads that have typically been on ADCs are falling out of favor due to concerns around toxicity. And in the near term, I think we're going to start to see some more topoisomerators inhibitors that will become the preferred payload of choice. Great. And Mavra, how about you? Yes, and I completely agree with with Trent. You know, some of these non-cytotoxic payloads are, are certainly very interesting. And Pete, as you know, we've we've seen a lot of a lot of money being raised for some of these early or alternative payloads. Um, I think beyond that, what's also really interesting is some of the intraindication dynamics. Uh, I think breast cancer is right now one space where we have multiple ADCs approved. So, and her to Tridelvi and Kitsila. And, um, you know, that sets up the stage for, you know, the way who's going to be the winner. So for uh, triple negative breast cancer, we have Tridelvi, which targets TROP2. And then we also have Enherdu, which Trent mentioned earlier, um, they presented some really impressive data earlier last year, but it targets her too. And I guess the key question is, which from a physician's perspective, which do you use first? Um, the current thinking is that they're both likely going to be used sequentially. If from a market perspective, it would be interesting to see which is used first and gets majority of the share and then how many patients get the next option. And while it's still early, some of the data that was has been publicly released, um, as well as some of the commentary we've heard from the street, looks like in Herdu that was able to demonstrate um, superior efficacy in the Destiny Breastboard trial, although it was a small study. Um, physicians ex- are going to be likely using it um, as a first option, and there may be patients who go on to Tridelby, um, but the, the current thinking, it looks like it, it's going to be over time, and Herodio has the potential to take sales away from, from Tudelby. That remains um, to be seen, obviously guided by efficacy there. The other key aspect is also tolerability when it comes to ADCs. And that's where Inherdu may not have that much of an advantage over Tudelby. So there has been reports of interstitial lung disease, uh, albeit, you know, the case rate is 10%, so not that high. But enough that, you know, some physicians may bring it up with their patients and, and that could be a point of discussion, which one to use, but only time will tell how that plays out in the real world because the, the data from the, from the Destiny 4 study was in a, in a smaller population. And I will say when we say a smaller population in the breast cancer setting, 
it was a 500 patient study. So, you know, this is um, a large market and a 500 patient study is considered small. So um, something to watch out for. And then I mentioned Ketsyla um, as well, and that is in the HER2 positive breast cancer study setting. I think it's up for grabs between Ketsyla and HER2 at this point. Was up for grabs in 2022, but given the, as Trent said, standing ovation data that HER2 published with a 36% reduction in death in patients over Ketsyla, um, we do think, and, and the word in the street also points to HER2 likely taking share in the near term. So these are just some examples of some of the future dynamics, in, in especially in indications where we see uh, where there's going to be multiple approval and, and physician adoption, as well as patient preference, will likely guide market share for approved agents. Great. Well, thank you both, Trent and Mavra, for joining me today on the podcast. I know that piece generated a lot of interest uh, not only on Bioprocess Online, but our website. So that can be found on our website. It's titled Payday for Payloads. If you have a question about the biopharma and medtech strategic development, partnering or licensing, you can head over to that website, to the podcast page, and submit it at www.bblsa.com backslash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcasts podcasts. Your question may be the topic of an upcoming podcast, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much, and look forward to you joining us next time on the Life Science Report from Back Bay Life Science Advisors.